welcome to the Seeking Pearls podcast. Today we are beginning a new series going through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is the first letter that Peter wrote to a group of exiles that are living in what is now northern Turkey. And we believe that Peter wrote this from Rome, probably in 63 or 64 AD. And Peter was crucified very likely in 67 AD. So this is just a little bit, like a couple of years before his crucifixion. Um, It's interesting because Peter was told by Jesus 30 years before this that he was going to be crucified and uh, be crucified for his faith in Christ. And for 30 years, Peter has known that his life will end with severe suffering. And we don't know a ton about what Peter did and went through and where he ministered in between about Acts chapter 12 and 1 Peter. Like that's about 20 years there that we don't really know where Peter was, what he was doing, where he was ministering. It's very likely because he's writing this letter to the areas in northern Turkey. It's very likely that he went there and did some ministry. Also, I read that it is thought that he spent the last 10 years of his life in Rome. I'm not sure if that was as a prisoner or not as a prisoner. Uh, what I just read in my commentary said that it was believed that he was not a prisoner for the last 10 years of his life, but that he was in Rome and then was crucified in Rome. And it's so interesting that he spent his whole ministry 30 years knowing full well that it was going to end in crucifixion because Jesus actually told him that in John chapter 21 before Jesus ascended into heaven. So for 30 years, Peter knew this is where his life was headed. And first Peter has a very uh, intentional message to those who are suffering, to those who are suffering persecution. It's just really interesting for me coming from Peter, not knowing if he what kinds of persecution he went through. We know that he was in prison in Acts chapter 12 and that he was miraculously released from prison. And then after that, I mean, we assume, right, that he went underwent great suffering during that time, just like the Apostle Paul did. I assume Peter did as well, but we just don't have as much information. And then knowing that he was his life was going to end with crucifixion, he had a really unique uh, outlook on suffering and suffering for the sake of Christ. Uh, and so in First Peter, that comes out. Like we see that it has a lot to say about suffering. And I have been really drawn toward towards First Peter for a few weeks now. I think that I'm going to be writing my next Bible study on First Peter. I just really have felt compelled to study it, to read it, to write on it, and to podcast on it. So I'm excited about that. I want to be honest, though. I, today, I mean, my plan was to start today and to record a podcast on on chapter one of 1 Peter. But 1 Peter is all about suffering. And today, because of the horrible, devastating school shooting yesterday, Today, I was like, oh, I should not do that today. Like, I don't have words to say to those who are suffering. And my heart is shattered just like yours. 
And Paul and I were praying in the kitchen this morning, and I was crying, just praying for the brothers and sisters primarily uh, of the of the kiddos who lost their lives yesterday, just praying for their siblings. My heart is just totally shattered. And I just thought, I can't do that today. I, like it's, I felt like it wasn't appropriate for me to share 1 Peter chapter 1, which is all about suffering uh, on a day like today. But then... I think it was the Lord who was like, Rebecca, first of all, God's word is always needed, especially in times of suffering, especially in times of suffering, God's word is needed. And it's true that I don't have words to share with you, but that's why I always tell people I'm really not a speaker. I'm a Bible teacher. Um, My kind of like my mantra is if I'm not holding a Bible, I have nothing to say. (laughs) It's totally true. If I am not holding a Bible, I have nothing to say. So I have no words of encouragement, but God's word does. And so I'm just going to plow ahead and we are going to look at God's word, and we're going to consider those who are suffering. The text of 1 Peter is specific, though. The suffering that he is discussing in this letter is, I think it can be applied to all suffering, but it is very specific. And so I don't, even though we might apply it to the different types of suffering in our lives, I don't want to lose Uh, the focus that he is writing to those who are being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus, which we might experience in little bits in here in the United States with Western Christianity. We do, like, I understand there, there are times where we experience little bits of persecution for our faith in Christ, but it is absolutely nothing compared to what the Christian persecution these people were facing at this time and still are around the world. Uh, Christian persecution around the world is every bit as much or m- more intense as it was in the days that First, First Peter was written. But here in the United States, we might feel like people judge us or put us in a box and we might call that persecution that is not the persecution that they faced in these days. So when First Peter was written, it was about 63 or 64 AD. Nero was fairly new into his emperor role. And his real persecution of Christians started around 64 AD. So this letter may have been written just shortly after the really intense persecution started. And then Emperor Nero was horrible, and we know a lot about his persecution of Christians, but he wasn't the worst. I have read that Emperor Domitian, which I think was like 80, 90, 80, or between 80 and 90 AD, I've heard that he was far worse. And so Nero was horrible, but it continued on being horrible for many decades and even centuries that Christians were persecuted throughout the Roman Empire. So under Nero, it started in about 64 AD after the fire in Rome, and Nero blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome, and that really started the persecution. And Christians were thrown into uh, the gladiator ring and and fed to the lions, and they were crucified as entertainment, like in the midst of the Colosseum, when people came to watch the gladiators, which 
was horrific in itself. I mean, just so horrible, just forcing people to fight to the death. They would also put in the gladiator ring Christians who would be crucified in the gladiator ring or they would be fed to the lions or they would be sewn into like animal skins and then fed to the lions. Uh, Christians would be put on posts and lit on fire. I mean, it was unbelievably horrific. And that is the the day, the time in which Peter is writing this letter. So let's go ahead and start. I'm nine minutes into this podcast and we haven't even read a word of First Peter yet. Uh, so, well, one more thing, just one more background thing. I really, I love background. I think it's so important to our understanding of the letters. Um, if you don't care for it, you can go ahead and skip ahead in the podcast. But one more uh, note on Peter is just keep in mind that this is the same Peter. I love Peter. I study Paul way more. I'm kind of obsessed with studying the Apostle Paul's life, but I love Peter as well, and I want to study more and more about Peter. I think his I think his personality is so relatable. I think his shame in his denial of Jesus is beautiful. Like he's just so ashamed and he weeps bitterly. I think what when he when in John 21 when Jesus calls to him when he's out fishing and he jumps in the water and swims 100 yards to shore with his outer cloak on like that would be really hard to swim 100 yards to shore in a in a fairly turbulent lake um, I mean that's a football field in a very turbulent lake with your outer cloak on and he just jumps in and swims to Jesus that's in John 21 if you want to look at that uh, and his restoration with Jesus on the beach. And then his incredible preaching for the fr- through the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. I mean, here's Peter who used to like stumble around his words and make mistakes quite often. Then we get to the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes and Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and lead you into all truth. And indeed, the Holy Spirit did. And we see that as being true for Peter and all the disciples. And then Peter is just filled with power and truth. And he preaches amazing sermons throughout the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. This is that Peter who has been overcome by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, a leader of the church, the leader of the apostles. Just a beautiful story. I really love Peter. This is him. All right, now we're going to get going. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. My goal is to make it through chapter 1 in one podcast. Not sure that's going to happen. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but my idea for this series through First Peter is that it will be for five weeks, five chapters for five weeks. So um, if we only get halfway through chapter one today, then I will make it six weeks and that'll be great too. Okay, so moving on. First Peter chapter one, verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, 
Grace and peace be yours in abundance. All right, so who is he writing to? Well, like I said, he is writing to people who are now, who are living in what is now northern Turkey. And it's interesting because he calls them exiles scattered throughout the provinces. So let's think about that word exiles. A couple of a couple of things for us to think about there. Peter is writing to both Jews and Gentiles. So it's very likely that a lot of the people who are here are people who have left Israel, Judea, Jews who have left Israel and Judea, the Galilee region, all those regions of Israel, and scattered. So they are exiles. They are Jewish, and they have scattered. (laughs) So they are exiles in the literal term of people from one country who have exiled their country and gone somewhere else. Um, Pretty much Jews that weren't living in Israel or even specifically Jews that weren't living in Jerusalem were considered to be exiles because Jerusalem is the home of the Jews. And so um, it could just mean that. But also think about what we just talked about, this extreme persecution that's beginning in Rome and we, we also have Gentiles. We know there's Gentiles uh, that are included as the recipients of this letter, and we'll see that as we go through the letter. So the exiles, uh, in reference to Gentiles, could certainly be people who are exiling it, um, Italy because the persecution in Rome is so intense. And of course, that persecution is going to spread throughout the Roman Empire, but it is most intense in Rome, and so people are fleeing from it. And specifically in Cappadocia, I learned this through a podcaster I love to listen to and looked it up on just Google, and it's really cool. Cappadocia, because of the uh, the, the sandstone s- landscape, it has like these incredible stone stone shapes. <laughs> all over the place like and and tunnels and just the landscape is really unique because of that that like natural tunnels have been created and even like underground cities have been created as places for exiles to hide or for people to hide with like um in ancient days when invading armies would come they would hide in these underground cities and underground systems of tunnels and so uh, there were people who were hiding, Christians, who were hiding from the Roman persecution, fleeing also to these hidden tunnels within the landscape of Cappadocia. So really interesting. And then, of course, oftentimes we hear the word exile being referred to as all of us who are believers in Christ because our citizenship is in heaven. We are exiles in this world. This world is not our home. Uh, Paul writes in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. And so that word exiles can also be used because of that. This world is not our home. So we could, in that way, we could say these exiles scattered throughout North Dakota and Minnesota and uh, the Midwest. But I also, I really don't want to lose the importance here of the context that this was written to people who were fleeing persecution. All right, so because they were fleeing, I love that in verse 2, Paul writes, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. 
Isn't that incredible? Because of the persecution surrounding them. We might assume that grace and peace are absolutely not theirs in abundance. We might assume they can't have any peace. And yet he tells them that grace and peace can be theirs in abundance. And he prays it for them. All right, in verse 3 he goes on, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love that these are people who, again, are might be hiding from persecution. And Paul reminds them in the midst of the great trials they're going through that they have a living hope, that they've been given a new birth into this living hope. You have hope and your hope is alive because his name is Jesus and he resurrected from the dead. Your hope is alive. When he talks about new birth, I'm, I got to think that he thinks back to Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And I went back and looked at John chapter 3 because I was like, I wonder if he heard that because Jesus and Nicodemus talk about this new birth. Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus just lets him know that there is a new birth that comes to us through the spirit and only through the spirit. So he's talking to Nicodemus about this, and it says that Nicodemus came to him at night. We aren't given any indication if the other disciples heard that conversation, but I would imagine that Jesus repeated the information for them, teaching them about a new a, a new birth, and that we are given new birth through the Holy Spirit. And when we are given that new birth through the Holy Spirit, it gives us a living hope. So not hope that anything in this world can possibly offer us, not a hope that is set on anything that will happen in this world. We know full well that this world leads to devastation and brokenness and incredible grief beyond really what we are capable of handling. And the hope that comes to us that is through the new birth of the Holy Spirit is a living hope because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive, our hope is alive. And this new birth leads us, verse 4, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Okay, the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. What is that? <laughs> what is that? It's kept in heaven for us. It can never perish, spoiled, or fade. And that is the coming kingdom. That is the inheritance. We are heirs of the coming kingdom. We are heirs with Christ and heirs of God. And we are heirs of the kingdom that is to come, the new heavens and the new earth. That is our inheritance. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. Nothing can take it away from us. It is kept in heaven for us. It is kept in heaven for us. When I take my kids shopping, like if, they, if they've been saving up their allowance for something significant, I recently was taking Griffin shopping for something that cost over $100, and he had been saving his allowance for it. And so he had $100 cash, and he had it in his pocket of, <laughs> of, his, of his like nylon athletic shorts. 
And I was like, Griffin, you're going to have to let me carry that money. He's like, why? It's in my pocket. And I'm like, it's going to fall out of your pocket, bud. It's not safe in your pocket. Let me put it in my purse. And he was like, oh, I can carry it in my pocket. And I was like, no, you really can't. We are not leaving this house with you having $100 in your athletic shorts pocket. And so he gave me the money. Why? Because I didn't want him to lose it. I didn't want it to fall out. I didn't want it to blow away in the wind. That's a lot of money. It's valuable. For a nine-year-old, lots of money. God keeps our inheritance in heaven. Like he's keeping it for us. Nothing that happens in this world can, can make our inheritance less valuable, less eternal, less beautiful. Nothing can tarnish it. Nothing can fade it. Nothing can spoil it. Earth is difficult and tragic and full of struggle. But Jesus says in John 16, 33, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So because of that, God keeps our inheritance in heaven for us. Nothing can fade, spoil, or cause it to perish. Now, when when Peter wrote this, I got to think he was thinking back to one day, 30 years prior-ish, 30-ish years prior, when he was sitting on a mountainside with Jesus, while Jesus preached his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said that day, he said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as Peter wrote these words to the people in northern Turkey, I have to think he was brought all the way back to like the Sea of Galilee, sitting on the mountainside with Jesus or the hillside as Jesus spoke these words. And Peter is now passing that on. There is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I love this, that we are being shielded by God's power through faith. Through our faith in Jesus, the power of God is going to shield us. Now, let me tell you something. That shielding is not about earth. We still, Jesus assured us, we still will face trials, tribulations, attacks, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but also physically in this world. And so that shielding by God's power is not about our life in this world. Uh, We will get sick. Our bodies will decay. We might have cancer. We might be the victims of a horrific uh, occurrence like occurred yesterday. We will undergo all kinds of tribulation. But the, the way in which God shields us is that he is shielding us eternally. He is shielding our spirit, soul, mind. He is shielding us and protecting us. This world might take away the things of the world from us, if that makes sense. Like our bodies might be taken away from us. Our health might be taken away from us. Our loved ones are taken away from us. But we are shielded 
in, in a spiritual sense by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I love that he indicates here that the salvation is ready to be revealed. I want to show you something. In 2 Peter, um, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, Peter writes um, that we ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. If we would look forward to the day of God, that is the return of Christ, we could speed its coming. We could speed the coming, the return of the Lord Jesus, if we would set our hearts on the return of the Lord Jesus. The salvation that is going to be revealed, it says here, is ready to be revealed. The reason it's not yet being revealed is because we are not hastening the day that it's coming. We're supposed to hasten the day it's coming by setting our hearts on it. And the more we waste our time and set our hearts on other things, the longer it'll take for the day of the return of Christ to come. We need to be hastening the day. That is the language that the ESV uses there. Um, The NIV says speed its coming. The ESV says hasten its coming. I love that phrase. And it's all about setting our hope there. If we would eagerly await, we learn that in Romans, apodekomai. That's the Greek word for eagerly await. It's used seven times in the New Testament. And every single time that it is used in the New Testament, it is only to refer to the return of Christ. That Christians ought to be eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. And if we do that as a collective whole church, we could hasten the day of the return of Christ. But instead, we are twiddling our thumbs and wasting our time and not hastening the day of the Lord. So let's do it. Why? Because it is ready to be revealed. It is ready to be revealed. Verse 6. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. Okay, so what are we greatly rejoicing in? We are greatly rejoicing in the inheritance. The inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and it's kept in heaven for us. That is what we are greatly rejoicing in. And look here, Peter is assuming that the people he's writing to are greatly rejoicing. He says, verse 6, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So they are suffering grief in all kinds of trials. So are we. They're different, but they're very much similar as well. We are suffering grief in all kinds of trials. And yet he says, In this you greatly rejoice. Because he is convinced that these people are, in fact, greatly rejoicing in the inheritance that is to come, that will be revealed. And I want us to pause and ask ourselves, is this true of us? Are we greatly rejoicing? Are we greatly rejoicing in what is to come at the return of Christ? In the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade? Or are we rejoicing in the things that we see now on earth? 
There's a lot of things that we are absolutely not rejoicing in on earth. But there's other things that we do set our hopes on on earth and that we do decide to rejoice over on earth. And if our rejoicing is in such a way that we are rejoicing and praising God for the gifts he's given us, that's awesome. But if our rejoicing is in that we think that this is all there is and that there is this is all there is to be celebrated, and so we celebrate it and we forget about what is to come, then that is an error. Then we have set our hope in the wrong place. So what are we greatly rejoicing at? Or another option. So the options so far, are we greatly rejoicing in the inheritance to come? Are we greatly rejoicing in misplaced things? Have we set our hope in the wrong place? Or are we not rejoicing at all? Which would be devastating. And I get it. I get it. This world might feel like it's sucking all the rejoicing out of you. I get it. However, if we feel like that, the people who received this letter for the first time certainly felt that way as well or could have felt that way. And yet we're called to rejoice. We are called to rejoice in the God who is shielding us by his power And he has an inheritance for us that he is keeping for us, that he wants to reveal to us if we would simply wait eagerly for the day of salvation and hasten its return. Verse 7, he goes on to explain the trials. And he says, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So something that's really interesting I read about the way that gold is refined by fire is the refiner is going to stir the melted gold. He stirs it for so long until the impurities have melted off, until he can see his reflection perfectly in the melted pot of gold. So he's going to stir that gold over fire until he perfectly sees his reflection. How beautiful is that for us to remember that that's what the trials we're going through on this earth. They are refining us like it's a fire underneath us and it's painful. And yet it says that um, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of our faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed so that our faith can be refined like gold, that the impurities can be melted off, and so that the refiner, that is God himself, will see his reflection in us. We are supposed to be made more and more to look like Jesus, to be like Jesus, to reflect the image of Jesus to the world. And the struggles and the trials that we go through that hurt so bad, it's a fire refining us, refining our faith so that we might, so that that refined faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus does in fact return. That is uh, the purpose underneath the trials that we go through on this earth. I think it's beautiful to look more like Jesus. 
Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Okay, I want to stop there again. Because there again, we need to ask ourselves, is this true? Though I haven't seen Jesus, do I love him? I love this because this makes me think that Peter is thinking back to, um, again, in John chapter 21, when Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And now he says here in verse 8, and each time, well, each time that Jesus asked him, he answered him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And now here he's telling us the same thing. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. So I think we should ask ourselves, do I love him? Do I love Jesus? It's always good to just pause and ask, am I loving you, Jesus? Am I loving you? Am I actively loving you? Am I showing the world that I love you, Jesus? Am I showing you, Jesus, that I love you? Going on in verse 8, And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Okay, let's pause there again. Am I? (laughs) Just ask yourself, am I filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy? Am I filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy? Just ask yourself. The world is trying its hardest to beat it out of you. 100%. The world, Satan, and sin itself is trying to beat out of you this inexpressible and glorious joy. So are we keeping in step with the Spirit? Because joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tell us the fruit of the Spirit. And then it says, so keep in step with the Spirit. So keep in step with the Spirit. Let the Spirit fill you up. You can't conjure up your own joy. It's from the Spirit. But we can keep in step with the Spirit so that the Spirit can work with us and can grow the fruit in us. Am I filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy? And if the answer is no, I'm not, then pray for it. Lord, give me joy. Lord, you know the trials. You know the suffering. You know the devastation. In the midst of it, give me joy. Give me joy. Just ask for it. Here's why. Why should we have joy? Verse 9, because you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You will receive the inheritance. Why should you be filled with joy? Because the inheritance is coming. Glory is guaranteed. Jesus is going to return. The new heavens and the new earth are for you. You get to live in them. It will never perish, spoil, or fade This is worth rejoicing over. This is worth rejoicing over. We're going to take verses 10, 11, and 12 as we wrap up this podcast. 
This is just so fascinating. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Okay, that is just so fascinating. It's just so amazing. <laughs> so the prophets of the Old Testament think about, um, especially com- considering what Peter is saying here, it makes me think of Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Joel, Zephaniah, but really all the prophets. I could go on. Oh, Daniel, like the glories to come. Daniel has a lot of stuff um, about uh, the return of Christ. So these prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come, they searched intently and with great care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Holy Spirit was pointing. Now, when it says they searched intently, I love this because they are not searching through books. They are not searching through the internet, obviously. They are searching out in the spiritual realm. They would have been searching out through prayer. Tell me more, God. Tell me more, God. Tell me more, God. As God is telling them, like when God told Jeremiah, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. It's just beautiful because I think Jeremiah must have been seeking and asking more, more, more. Tell me more, God. Tell me more, God. And God only gave what he gave, you know? So maybe God did give more and that's what we have. In Joel, in Joel chapter 2, when he says, At that time, I will pour my spirit upon you. That is so wonderful because Peter himself used that prophecy from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Peter himself used that prophecy in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And it's so neat because Peter then, like the Holy Spirit would told Peter, hey, this is what Joel was talking about. And then Peter must have realized, oh my goodness, Joel probably didn't even know when he was talking like what time frame he was talking about when he prophesied that. But Joel was wondering and seeking and intently searching and asking for the timeline on this. But God probably didn't give Joel the timeline. But then God gave Peter the fulfillment of it and showed Peter and said, Peter, this is the film fulfillment of Joel. And then Peter got to share it. And it's so wonderful. And now Peter is telling us that... The prophets searched out trying to find all of this information for you. In verse 12, it says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Even angels long to look into these things. So friends, I'm going to wrap up here. We will split chapter one into two weeks. But I just want to encourage you. What Peter is saying in here is that the suffering is intense. The suffering of this world uh is full of tragedy and trial of all kinds, is what he says. It is heart-wrenching. It is not what we are made for. Let me say that again. It is not what we were made for. 
What we were made for is coming. The inheritance is coming. And Peter wants to assure the people that this inheritance cannot perish, cannot spoil, cannot fade. It is kept in heaven for you. And God, by his power, through faith in Jesus Christ, is guarding you spiritually to make certain that you will experience the fullness of this inheritance. Nothing, nothing that happens to you physically on this earth can separate you from the inheritance that is to come. God is guarding you and God is guarding the inheritance. Our job is to make certain that our hope is set in the right place, that our hope is not set in anything on earth, but only in the inheritance that is to come. It's a living hope because Jesus is alive. Our hope is alive. Our hope is Jesus alone and his return to earth. And as we set our hopes on the return of Jesus Christ to earth, we will hasten the day of his coming. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's set our hope on the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Have an awesome day.